0: Have you ever heard someone say to you before, isn't Christianity just about rules? Isn't Christianity just a bunch of laws and and about rule keeping? In 2017, a study was done and 14% of Australians now identify as spiritual, not religious. Spiritual, but not religious. They don't see God. They don't see the divine in traditional religion in places like christianity so they've gone elsewhere were they right to do that is christianity just full of laws and regulations and rule keeping is that what the bible is about or is there something deeper going on something far more compelling something far more beautiful something far more innate to our desires as human beings We're going to be asking those exact questions this morning. And we're going to be doing that by looking at Leviticus 16. Now, if you know Leviticus, you're probably thinking, Ben, you've just shot yourself in the foot. (laughs) You're going to a book full of laws to talk about how Christianity isn't about laws. What's going on? Well, you're right. If you haven't read Leviticus before, it's one of those books that Christians often skip over when they're reading. It's pretty heavy going, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, laws and regulations. And they've got some weird laws in there as well, like you can't eat shellfish. Apparently it makes you selfish. (laughs) I am a dad now. I'm allowed to make dad jokes. You can't wear clothes with mixed fibers. I checked my shirt today. It's 100% viscose, so I'm all right with that one. (laughs) It's got some funky laws in there. It's full of regulations, and we wonder, what's going on here? And I think this is exactly the place that we should go if we are going to show people that Christianity is about even more than the rules it contains. If we can show in Leviticus 16 that there's something deeper going on, we can show it anywhere in the Bible. So we're going to approach this question, is Christianity just about rules and regulations, by asking why of Leviticus 16. We're going to be like one of those kids when they get to that stage in their their early years and they say why to everything. Why this? Why that? We're going to say that to Leviticus 16 this morning. Why all the rules here? Why all the rituals? Why all the ceremonies? Why, why, why? And we're going to look at three good reasons which ultimately show us that Christianity is about more than rules. And the first reason Leviticus 16 is full of laws about sacrifices and rituals is because it is an ancient Near Eastern text. Heavy going to start 2021. Ancient Near Eastern text. This is one of the reasons why it's full of rules and sacrifices. Part of our problem in reading books like Leviticus is because we approach them as 21st-century thinkers, and we compare it with everything we know in the 21st century if we think, "This is odd, this is weird." But that's not really fair to treat a text like this like that. We actually need to go back to the culture, back to that time and understand what was going on then. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't come as a white European to Israel or as an alien from Mars? God communicates within cultures. God loves to communicate in ways we understand. Here's something that I think works really well when it comes to culture, and I think Jesus' incarnation teaches us this as well. God doesn't capitulate to culture, nor does he obliterate culture. So he doesn't capitulate to culture. He doesn't just do whatever we want and serve what we think he should do. But he doesn't obliterate culture. He doesn't come from an alien, as an alien from Mars speaking a language we don't know. He works within culture, and he helps us to understand, and he distinguishes himself from it to teach us about who he is. And in the same way, he worked within the ancient Near East. Here is a map of the ancient Near East. Apologies about the pixelation there. But if we ever look over here, <clears throat> this is the ancient Near East, this whole map here. Down the bottom here is kind of like North Africa, This was Egypt. This is the promised land where Israel eventually took place. This is where the Hittite Empire is, where kind of Turkey is today and Europe. And then this area here is pretty much what we would call the Middle East today. The ancient Near Eastern world. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern world, sacrifices and rituals were part and parcel of the culture. They were part of everyday life temples, sacrifices, gods. For ancient Near Eastern people, the temple was the place where heaven intersected with earth, the place where the divine was able to be connected with and accessed. And God was communicating to Israel in this kind of culture. So he worked within it. But we can learn a bit more about him by looking at how he distinguishes himself from the other spiritual practices of the day. For example, you will find in the ancient Near East that their rituals, their practices are full of what we call incantations, words, phrases, spells, things that they had to say in order for the ritual to be effective. It's interesting because the ancient Near East is full of it, but Israel's laws, Israel's rituals are completely, it's completely missing from it. Let me give you an example of one ritual in that area. So there's a Hittite ritual which outlines how to prevent a spiritual threat from harming a king. How to prevent a spiritual threat from harming the king. And it gave the king specific words, incantations, that he needed to say in order to make the ritual effective. So here's part of what he had to say. I'll read it to you word for word. And the matter about which I prayed to you, listen to me, moon God, my Lord, that omen which you gave, if you found fault with me, Witness that I've given you straight away these substitutes. These take, but let me go free. See, I, the king, have come in person to your sanctuary and have given you these substitutes. Consider this substitution. Let these die, but let me not die. Now, in the ritual, he's actually referring to three human beings here. He takes three human beings and he asks the threatening God to consider them his substitute. And it gets even worse. He takes a prisoner out, and he dresses him up as the king. He puts robes on him and everything, and he says to the gods, this is the king, not me. This is the king. Afflict him, curse him, let him die. Now, in that day and age, it wasn't a great thing to be like a celebrity doppelganger. You didn't want to look like the king in that sort of time. If you were living back then, and the king started asking, what sort of robe size do you wear? What sort of crown do you wear? you'd hightail it out of the Hittite empire straight away. You wouldn't want to end up being one of these substitutes that he had. This was the kind of culture that Israel operated in. Now, not only did God graciously provide them with animals instead of human beings, but incantations are completely non-existent in Israel's rituals. Why does that matter? Why am I telling you this? Because when we create gods in our own image we inevitably end up creating gods that are harsh, that are cruel, gods that we have to manipulate, that we have to work up to get them to help us, to give us their favor. But when the true God revealed himself to Israel, he didn't leave them guessing about how to stay in a good relationship with him. They didn't have to add all sorts of words and work themselves up and add exclamation marks to what they were saying to secure his favor, actually Leviticus 16 is a very gracious gift. At the beginning, it's very clear that the Lord gave them this ceremony. They didn't have to guess and trying to work it out, and it was gracious. They could trust that God had given this to them, and that if they did it, they would be at one with Him, that they would be at one with Him. That's one of the things I've found in studying some of the ancient Near Eastern religions. They mischaracterize God. Their gods seem to be harsh, difficult to please, unpredictable, but Yahweh, the true God, the God of the Bible, reveals himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. If you read Leviticus 16 through ancient Near Eastern eyes, you do see an elaborate ritual, yes, that was common. But you also see a trustworthy ritual, something that God himself had given to the people to maintain their relationship with him. Leviticus 16 is full of grace. Now, one of the other things I've found in studying other ancient Near Eastern rituals is that they minimize the human problem. I'm not an expert, but of the texts I've read, I've hardly ever found personal repentance involved. In fact, most of them blamed whatever was going on on an evil spirit. That out there, not me, that out there is the problem. Let's deal with that. Let's do a ritual to deal with that. But that's only part of our problem. Our problem is actually much greater than that. And We'll discover what our problem exactly is by asking why again of Leviticus 16. Why are all these rituals and rules in here? Well, another reason is because they're dealing with our problem. Because they're dealing with our problem. The ceremony in our chapter is what we call the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. It was probably, other than the Passover, it was the biggest day in the Jewish calendar. They call it Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. It was all about ensuring that God and the people could remain together. That's why we use the English word atonement. If you break that down, it means at-one-ment. It was about enabling the people and God to be at one, to maintain fellowship. And there are two goats that are offered in this ritual as a sin offering for the people because there were two essential problems being dealt with. Let me just read some of the verses from Leviticus 16 to you, and then I'll explain them. Starting in verse 7. Then he shall take the two goats, so Aaron the high priest, shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. We'll explain what Azazel is later on. The ESV from which I'm reading leaves that that Hebrew word untranslated so we can decide for ourselves what it means. It's It's a difficult one for many people. But there are two goats being dealt with in this ceremony because there are two essential problems. That we have as people. And the two Hebrew words used throughout this chapter are Tumah and Pesha. Tumah and Pesha. Tumah refers to uncleanness, to impurity, and Pesha refers to personal rebellion. Tumah and Pesha. First, let's look at Tumah. This is what the first goat was dealing with. Tumah refers to our impurity, and this is what the first goat of the Lord deals with, the one whose blood is used in the sanctuary. Now, most people in the West don't get the concept of impurity at all. We've only heard of sin as personal rebellion, and that's true, but the curse of sin also refers to the defiling influence that was unleashed on our world when we rebelled against God. That's why in Romans 8 we read, the creation was subjected to futility Later on, the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption. Death and decay affect us and our world, and these are part of our problem because God is pure life. He is pure life. And anyone who lives under the power of death, who touches the power of death in any way, is impure, is unclean to be able to deal with the holy God. That's why in Leviticus, touching an animal carcass or even touching a dead relative at a funeral would make you unclean or impure. Often the case was you weren't actually committing a rebellious sin. It wasn't actually guilt involved in that. But the fact that you touched that would make you unclean. you have been dealing with the power of death. One scholar says, anything dead is laden with the power of death. And for that reason, it does, in a special way, make a person impure, that is, incapable of dealing with the holy, the power of life itself. Here's a 60-second clip that explains it really well. Check this out. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So, how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So, like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Just a quick explanation to try and get that one across. So this shows us that our problem is far deeper than we realize. Even if somehow we could maintain a perfect moral record, we are unclean. Death has been unleashed in our world. We age, we die, and the holy God cannot dwell in an unclean world amongst an unclean people. It's not because his presence is bad, it's because his presence is so good. And Leviticus 16 shows us that our rebellion and uncleannesses actually create more pollution. Our sinfulness profanes the space around us and makes it unfit for God to dwell among us. This is why Sklar, another scholar, comments on this chapter saying, It appears that sin was viewed as that which defiled the sanctuary in particular, almost as though it were an impure dust that settled on the tent of meeting, and its contents. This is what was being dealt with by the first goat, and this is what is being dealt with in verses 11 to 19 of our passage. Aaron is using the blood of animals to cleanse God's sanctuary from pollution. Let me explain it this way. It's almost like when we sin, or even if we just come in contact with death, it's almost like we're one of those dirty cars where black smoke comes out of the exhaust pipe. It's like we create pollution every time. And when Israel, as they lived around the temple, when they sinned against someone, yes, it could be something that they did wrong, or even if they just were touching a dead relative, or they had to to kill an animal to eat it, they were unleashing death. And it was like the exhaust pipe pumped out more fumes and more pollution every time. And this pollution had to be dealt with every year on the Day of Atonement. Now, you might still be wondering, why does blood cleanse the sanctuary? It sounds a little gruesome. But the reason blood was used is because blood signified life. Leviticus 17.11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So blood is not only precious because it represents the life of a creature, but it is holy because it represents life given by the holy God. So it's as if when Aaron walks around the temple, sprinkling the blood over the instruments and over the tent, he's covering over all of the impurities that have accumulated there over the year. That's what the word atonement actually means very simply means to cover over. It's the Hebrew word kefar. And its most basic sense means to cover. So ESV, I think, should translate it to cover there. When he goes to make a tome in the temple, he goes to cover over the temple with blood, spreading a symbol of life, of holiness, over places that have become defiled and have become unfit for God to dwell in. That's what was going on with the first goat. After verses 11 to 19, Aaron goes on to deal with Pesha, the people's personal rebellion against God. So God is our creator and our king, and when we rebel against him, we break relationship with him, and we're liable to his judgment, whatever penalty is under his law. Leviticus 16 teaches us that we are, in a sense, victims to uncleanness, to death, but we're also rebels, willful rebels against the king. And that's what's being dealt with by the second goat, the goat sent to Azazel. Let me read about the second goat for you. Verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. Notice there no mention of uncleannesses anymore. That's already been dealt with by the blood. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it. I actually think, it'd be far better to translate it, drive it out. That Hebrew word in judgment context means to drive out. So he shall put them on the head of the goat and drive it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall drive the goat into the wilderness okay so let me explain this so here it's like the second goat is being brought before god in the temple and this is sometimes considered a legal context where god as the judge would render his judgment and what aaron would do is he would lay both his hands on top of the goat's head now in the rest of leviticus you'd only ever lay one hand on top of an animal's head and you wouldn't say anything it wasn't clear that you did anyway But here, he lays both hands, it's super emphatic, and he confesses all the iniquities, all the sins, all the rebellions of the entire nation over this goat. He's basically transferring guilt to this goat, and it's being seen as a substitute, as like a scapegoat for the people. And God renders his judgment, it's driven out into the wilderness to face Azazel, It's banished, it's excommunicated from the presence of God. Now, Azazel has been much debated. We don't have time to go into all of that this morning. But this Hebrew word only appears in Leviticus 16, and people have puzzled over its meaning. That's why I said the ESV leaves it untranslated, so that you can decide for yourself. But I actually did my final thesis to complete my master's on this chapter, And I'm convinced that the biblical evidence shows that Azazel was a personal name and that it refers to some kind of evil presence out in the wilderness. And I would suggest that it refers to Satan. Just like in other ancient Near Eastern rituals, a demon features in this one as well. This was the goat's judgment. He appeared before God as the people's substitute, received all of their guilt and sin and filthiness, and was judged by God, excommunicated from his presence, to suffer alone and ultimately die in the domain of evil. The second goat deals with the punishment we deserve as rebels against God. What is our problem? Well, first, it's Tumar. It's our fallen nature and world. We are unclean and under the curse of death. And second, it's Peshah, our rebellious hearts that ignore God and do things our own way. We cannot be with God as people under the power of death. We cannot know a God who we are estranged from as enemies. Leviticus 16 is full of these elaborate ceremonies because it's dealing with an elaborate problem, our human problem. But again, why Why these ceremonies? Do they actually achieve anything? Or are they just symbolic? And if they're just symbolic, why do them? Well, here's our third reason, our final reason. Why? Because it's pointing us to the solution. Because it's pointing us to the solution. These rituals were never actually meant to end our problem. They were only ever signposts pointing forward to the ultimate, the true solution. Hebrews 10. Hebrews is a great book to interpret Leviticus. Hebrews 10 says, In these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to actually take away sins. It was a ceremony. But it pointed forward to something real, something lasting. It pointed forward. To Jesus Jesus chose to fulfill everything that these two goats symbolized, even though he knew that it meant bloodshed for him and judgment and accursedness. Hebrews again says, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. It's like there's a true temple in heaven. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf as our high priest. Nor bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Did you catch that? Jesus entered into the real temple, into heaven, the hotspot of God's presence. And it's as if he took his own blood in there and cleansed away all the impurities, all the sins, all the rebellions that were before God. Everything that was before God's attention. And he bore the sins of many and suffered under them so that rebels could be forgiven. He has cleansed away our Tamar. And just like the second goat, he has served the penalty for our Pesha. He stood in our place. And God placed all of our guilt and shame and rebellions upon him. And he was banished from God's presence. Out to Golgotha, the place of the skull, to confront Satan and to die on a God-forsaken cross. Only after Jesus had died did people finally understand why Leviticus 16 existed and what other ancient promises like those found in Isaiah 53 meant. I'm going to read a large section of Isaiah 53 because it's just so beautiful and fits so well with what we've learned And it's about this mysterious servant that God had promised would save his people, a servant that we now know is Jesus. Isaiah 53, it's not up on the screen, but I'm gonna read it for us from the CSB translation. Verse three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked But he was with a rich man at his death, because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he willingly... Submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Why would Jesus go through that? Why would Jesus, God in the flesh, go through that kind of judgment, that kind of horrific sentence? The reason? Well, even in old, dusty law books like Leviticus, it has always been about relationship for God. It has always been about relationship with his people. And because he loves his people, he went through that to save them, to reconcile them, to deal with their problem so that they could know him personally. The rules are not there for rules' sake. The rules are there because they were part of God's plan and process to restore his fellowship with us. Leviticus 26 says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. God, through Jesus, Has overcome every single barrier that stopped him from being with us. Through Jesus, God has overcome every single barrier that prevented him from being with us. Did you know that God wants to dwell with you? God wants relationship with you. God wants you to know him personally deeply, authentically. And he went through everything he did at the cross just to show you so clearly how good his heart is, how full of love he is, and to deal with the problems that stood between us and him. So we're free now to have relationship with God, to really get to know him by reading the Bible, by talking to him, by doing everyday life, with him. A lady called Mary Slessor. She lived in the 19th century in Scotland. She came to understand that God wants this kind of relationship with us. So she got to know him very personally. And he affected her so much that her biographer says she came to love him more than she loved even her own safety. Livingstone he tells us a bit more about her. He said, most of all, it was the story of Christ that she poured over and thought about, his divine majesty, the beauty and grace of his life, the passion of his death on the cross that affected her inexpressibly. But it was his love, so strong, so tender that won her devotion and filled her with happiness and peace that suffused her inner life like sunshine. In return, she loved him with a love so intense that it was often a pain. As the years passed, she surrendered more and more to his influence and was ready for any duty she was called upon to do for him, no matter how humbling or exacting it might be. It was this passion of love and gratitude, this abandonment of self, this longing for service that carried her into her life work. You See, Mary Slessor, discovered the meaning of life. Mary Celesta discovered that life, it's about knowing God. It's about relationship with Him. This is what the whole Bible has been working towards. It's about fellowship with Him. And as she got to know God, it filled her heart with love and it completely transformed her life. She ended up serving in some of the most dangerous places in the world, to tell other people about this love, about Jesus. Christianity is not about rules. It has them for good reasons, but right at the heart of it is a person. Christianity is about Christ. Christianity is about relationship with God. Do you now see why all those rules were in there in Leviticus 16? Even in a passage full of laws, a path was being charted to the cross, to the place where God would bridge the gap between him and his people. God's intention has always, always been to restore our relationship with him. Do you enjoy that today? Where are you at with God? Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're online with us, and you haven't experienced ever a relationship with God. Maybe you you long for what Mary Slesser experienced. The presence of God, the love of God that infuses your inner life like sunshine. Maybe you're with us this morning and you're a Christian, but you realize you've you've drifted from what it's really all about. Your life has become filled with with rituals and duties and and rule-keeping, but you don't really feel like you know God right now. You don't really feel like you're walking with Him personally. Christianity is about relationship. It's about knowing Him. So we're going to end our time together by just doing some business with God. Leanne's going to come up and play some piano for us And I just want you to spend these next few minutes, take your time, just sitting there and just responding to God. You might ask someone to pray for you, respond as you feel led. And I want to ask you to prioritize that relationship. And if you don't know God, in these moments, you can accept what Jesus did for you at the cross and you will be given access to that kind of relationship with God. We're going to spend a few minutes now Take your time and in a few more minutes I'll come back up and I'll pray for us. It's all about you. This world, this life, it's always been about you, Lord. Jesus, thank you for what you did for us. You went through all of that, that suffering, that shame, that death on the cross to bridge the gap between us and your presence Lord, we worship you in this place. We worship you in this place, Lord. And we pray, Lord, guard us. May we never make this about just rule keeping or empty ceremonies, but ultimately about you. Fill us with love. Infuse our inner life with the sunshine of your presence, Lord. We want to know you. Do not let us walk away do not let us get distracted and father maybe some of us this morning want to say for the first time we choose you jesus we thank you for saving us from our sin from our rebellion from our uncleanness from our judgment we're ready we're ready to live with you for the rest of our lives and for all of eternity Lord, we bless your name in this place. We pray this through Jesus because he has secured this relationship. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church? We're going to sing one last song right now. And I just want to bless you with these words from 2 Corinthians before we do. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.